Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host. I'm happy you're here. It is a great day to be alive. And I've got a great interview to share with you today. My guest is named Sam Dogan. Sam left his job at investment banking at age 34 to start his own financial newsletter. It's called The Financial Samurai. And he's got a new book out this week called Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. And it's chock full of great information about how to live a healthy financial life. In our conversation today, Sam and I discuss his one-word definition of happiness. I know you can't guess the word, so you have to stick around to find out what it is. It's a really good one, actually. How wearing the right tie helped him get a job at Goldman Sachs. How he then transitioned out of investment banking to become an independent financial writer. How the right plan is the key to surviving inflation and the ups and downs of the market. Why he advises young adults to forecast their professional misery. Oh, that sounds dark. And it's not that dark, but it's very practical. We discuss his best and worst financial investments and among other things, the return on investment of private versus public school. I want to say thank you to Sam for his graciousness in the process of recording this. As many of you know, we are we are transitioning from an old process to a new process of how we produce crazy money. And in the metallic machinations thereof, the first effort to record this interview got messed up by yours truly. And Sam was extraordinarily gracious in agreeing and, and in fact, offering to re-record the interview. Actually, even had a better conversation. So I want to say thanks to Sam. You know, in 150 episodes, I think it's maybe we've recorded 152 and put out 147. You know at some point as a podcaster that you're going to mess up the production and it's going to be on you. And uh, this was the first time it happened. Probably won't be the last knock on wood. And so thanks to Sam for his graciousness in getting this out efficiently and effectively. Hey, I want to tell you along those lines that next week we're going to be launching our full video versions of Crazy Money on YouTube and on Spotify. So by all means, please check out the link to our YouTube channel in the show notes. Subscribe and you will have the first taste of a great new slate of video versions of Crazy Money with great guests coming up, including the writer, podcaster, musician Coleman Hughes, and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who I had a wonderful conversation with a couple of weeks ago, and I can't wait to share that with you. For now, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Sam Dogan. Sam Dogan, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Paul. Sam, you've got a new book out. It's called Buy This, Not That. Here it is right here. That's my advanced copy. I'm important, so I got an advanced copy. It's called Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom. That sounds like how to eat yourself skinny. Is there a secret behind the book <laughs> that you're trying to, uh, that you want to get, get through to the reader? Well, I think life in general is full of choices. And the book tries to tackle some of the biggest choices, the biggest dilemmas we all face. Because it's not just a book about helping you achieve financial freedom sooner. It's about helping you make optimal decisions so you don't look back and look at your life with full of regret. And that's what I'm trying to help. Help people make better choices. We're in a weird place right now. Inflation is high. Interest rates are high. Unemployment is low. What kind of everyday decisions will your book help our listeners with? Well, I think the fundamental decision is how to get your money right so you can be on the right path to financial freedom. Because once you're on the right path, sooner or later, you will get there. That's a famous Chinese proverb that says, if the direction is correct, sooner or later, you will get there. But the problem is, I think a lot of people end up winging with their finances. They just say, oh, I'll save a little bit of here. I'll stash cash. Doesn't really matter what the environment is. I'll be all right. But they wake up five, 10 years later, 
and they wonder where, where all their money went. If we're on the right path and we, we practice the right practices, we'll be able to deal with the ups and downs. And we shouldn't freak out about the market going up 10% or down 10% or inflation going up a little bit because we have a plan and we're sticking to it. Is that right? That's exactly right. Stick to a framework. And I provide actionable frameworks and buy this, not that. So no matter what your age or work experience, based on your risk tolerance and your goals, you're going to follow this framework. And with a 70% or greater probability, you're going to likely turn out fine. And if you don't turn out fine, well, it's not going to be the end of the world. You're going to be able to learn from your mistakes. And this is what I talk about with my 70-30 decision-making framework. It's about approaching choices with the idea not to think in absolutes, but to think in probabilities. Because if you think in absolutes, you end up missing out on a lot of opportunities that could work out very well. So with the 70-30 framework, the idea is to say, if you believe with a 70% chance or higher, you will make the right decision, you go for it with conviction, while having the humility and knowing that 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong, but you're going to learn from your mistakes and get better. What's an example of a situation where I might put that 70-30 plan into action? Oh, so many, so many choices. So for example, I am a father right now uh, in a pandemic to two young children. So I'm dying in terms of not a lot of time or energy. I'm waking up at 6 a.m., got to write, and then I got to take, take care of my kids, two and a half year old and five and a half year old. So during the pandemic, it was really interesting in 2020 in San Francisco, it was the decision whether to pull our children out of school and homeschool them or send them to school. And so I used that framework and said, look, what are the downsides to homeschooling? And the downsides are there's a lot of time involved, your energy gets sucked. Maybe there might be some social uh, non-progress because he's always at home with the parents. And then the upside is I get to spend more time with them. And I look back on that and said, will I regret spending more time with my children during a pandemic when he could get sick and he was unvaccinated? And I said, uh, absolutely not. Now, now it's postmortem. He's now back in school. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what were the negatives? What were the downsides? And the downsides really were of his stunted social development as a four-year-old. Uh, with other kids that now we have to try to, you know, come back and build that back up again. How are you doing that? By the way, I know that's not exactly the topic of your book, but how are you trying <laughs> to re-socialize your four-year-old? Well, by setting up more play dates on the weekends, not just playing mm -hmm. with mommy and daddy all day, right? Uh, right. by sending them to <laughs> yeah. summer, summer camp uh, so that he's there. You know, I would feel really bad because I don't have a job, so I could pick him up ASAP at 3 p.m., uh, or I can have him hang out and loiter in the playground until 5.30 p.m. and fend for himself. But so what I've done was I've tried to, you know, overcome my guilt of sending him to summer camp and not spending time with him by saying, look, this is good for his socialization. And this is good for his Mandarin learning uh, skills because it's a Mandarin immersion school. And so I've slowly started picking up later and later. So first it was 3.30, then it was 3.45, then it was 4, 4.15, 4.30, 4.45. And by doing this, I'm kind of forcing him to survive on the hard knocks of the playgrounds and overcoming my guilt of not taking care of him when I can't. You mentioned that it's a Mandarin camp. You grew up in an immigrant household lacking things like Air Jordans and a Nintendo. How did your youth affect the way you approach the job market and how you relate to money today? I mean, it's really about not taking opportunities for granted. You know, one of the things that immigrants have uh, as a competitive advantage is they've seen two worlds, right? They've seen the world where 
Maybe there's a more corrupt government. Maybe pollution is much worse. Infrastructure is not as good. Education might not be as good. And then they come to America and they're like, wow, yeah, you know, there's always complaints about the government. But for the most part, they're not trying to rip you off and take bribes. And wow, there's free internet, there's libraries, nobody's trying to gun you down if you live in a normal neighborhood. And so that perspective of um, growing up in Malaysia, Taiwan, Japan, Philippines in the 80s and 70s really makes me appreciate what I have here today in the United States. So I don't want to take anything for granted. How is the household your kids are growing up in different than the one you grew up in? You know, my parents, uh, my father worked at, uh, at the U.S. Foreign Service officer and my mother was in Taiwan. They, they met in Taiwan. And the difference really is, well, my parents were really frugal because they didn't make much money as government employees. I know my mom probably made like $35,000, $40,000, not a lot. So they were always, always frugal. And when we would occasionally go out to eat, one time in Malaysia, we would go to these uh, mamak stalls, it's called. You just mm -hmm. sit on the side of the road, table outside, it's 80 degrees, a little humid, but you could order a lot of great food for 50 cents a dollar. And one time I just said, you know, I would like to order a Sprite. And the Sprite was like three times more than the, one of the main courses, right? And my dad was like, no, 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 you cannot order the Sprite. <laughs> Here's some tasty water and get a lemon slice and take it and like it. <laughs> and so, and he explained to me, look, it's just as good. It's better for you. But look at the prices compared to like the main course or the side dishes. It's more expensive. And so from that moment on, I was in middle school. It really instilled in me the importance of paying attention to your money and being frugal. But being frugal is just a half part of the equation. It's the defensive part of the equation that we all should have as automatic autopilot. We should always look for value and, and, and not splurge on things we really don't need. But really, it's about getting that defensive part right, the frugality right, savings right, so you can focus majority of your time on the offense, which is building more income. What point in your life did you start to really embrace the things that your dad taught you about money? And, and, and how did the career you chose influence the way you found your path to writing about money? And your writing is consumed by thousands, tens of thousands of people. What was that journey like from being yeah. the frugal kid to becoming the expert on the, on the topic? Well, everything's a journey. And I would, uh, I don't know if I can call myself an expert, but I have been writing. I called you an expert, Sam. I called you an expert. You, and you've, well, got, you've got many thousands of, of subscribers. So apparently okay. they think you're an expert too, right? Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank you. You know, so that moment in middle school, it was like seventh or eighth grade, really carried on into high school. So when we arrived in McLean, Virginia, which is Northern Virginia, we lived in a modest townhome. My parents bought an eight-year-old Toyota Camry. And I remember applying to college and I knew what they made because government income is public. And I realized they don't make that much for how much college costs for private school at the time. Uh, I remember seeing private school tuition at about twenty dollars to $25,000. And so I decided very consciously to apply and attend the College of William and Mary, which is a public school in Virginia. And a great school too, right? I mean, it's public school, but it's a damn good school. It's a great school. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get in. And the tuition was only $2,800 a year. But then, of course, there's uh, room and board. So no more than $10,000 a year to go all in. And I knew right then and there that I wanted to go to that school because it was a good school, but it was good value. And if I ended up graduating with no job, 
at the very least, at the very worst, I could go back to my job making $4 an hour at McDonald's and pay my parents back. Right. I knew that. I was like, I, I don't want to disappoint my parents. Again, this is what I'm going to do. Worst case scenario. And what was the experience like? How did it all play out? So it was great. First of all, I was so thankful to have gotten into the school because um, I, I surely got rejected from other schools. And what happened was I started trading in college in junior year and senior year. And it was just really addicting. And I ended up going to a career fair where I interviewed for a job at Goldman Sachs on the equities desk. And seven rounds and 55 interviews later, I got the job. And that also felt like winning the lottery. And I think all of us should feel like whatever job we have, being able to come on your show, you could have anybody in your show, but you chose me. I mean, I just feel so grateful that, you know, it's just a lot of gratefulness growing up in uh, emerging markets. You tell a funny and interesting and perhaps relevatory, I think that's the word, relevatory uh, story about how you ended up getting the job, why you were chosen to interview. And I wonder if it plays back into your culture. Why'd you end up getting that interview? So yeah, I do tell that story and buy this, not that. And that story is about getting on the damn bus at 6am. So there was a career fair in Washington, DC, about two and a half hours away, something like 20 to 30 kids signed up. So that's why they had the bus. So I woke up at 5.30am, put on my cheap suit and my tie, which I had a bear and a balloon on, which is a terrible tie. Uh, I mean, it was hilarious. That's just what Goldman Sachs is looking for, is the bear and the balloon on the tie. Well, I got to tell you a story about this after I tell you a story about this, uh, the bus. So I got on the bus, 6 a.m. I'm looking around. Nobody's there. I'm all bleary-eyed. 6 a.m. is terrible for a college kid, right? It's like half dark. I think it might have still been dark. And the bus driver and I, we waited for 45 minutes. And then he said, hey, Sam, you know what? Screw this. Let's get out of here. So I'm, okay, let's get out of here. So he drove the bus with just me inside to this really random shack in Virginia. It was like 20 minutes away. And then he parked the bus and then he backed out a black Lincoln town car. I was like, oh, black Lincoln town car with tinted windows. And he said, all right, let's, let's take this car. So I get in the car and he chauffeur limos me for two and a half hours, like the president <laughs> to the convention in Washington, DC. And just showing up enabled me to get those interviews that you know proceeded to be seven rounds and 55 interviews later. And with the tie, it was funny because the, my girlfriend at the time gave me the tie. So I'm like, well, if my girlfriend gave me the tie, I got to wear it. It's like a good luck charm. And I got there and I started talking to these uh, two really stuck up Merrill Lynch recruiters, right? Because I had an interview with Goldman Sachs, which was private, which was perceived as more, you know, more better, not more better, but better than Merrill Lynch. And then these two Merrill Lynch recruiters came up to me and said, hey, what's up with that tie? We at Merrill Lynch don't accept that tie. And then so I was like, wow, okay, if Merrill Lynch doesn't want to accept that tie. So what I did was I, I ran down, I found another friend, college friend, who ended up going there by himself, actually. And I said, hey, buddy, can I switch out ties for you for like this next hour? And he did. So I had like a normal, like whatever, gold tie. That's hilarious. Jared Dillion in his book, Street Freak, writes about what it was like going to Lehman and all the guys, the first thing they would look at is your tie and, you know, to see if it was, uh, you know, Ferragamo or one of the, you know, premium oh, yeah. brands. How is a college kid supposed to be able to afford a $300 tie? Yeah. I mean, my tie had paper in it. I remember it just being all crinkly. I was like, what is this? But I guess it was a tie. 
That's hilarious. So you went on to work at Goldman, but eventually you said, this isn't for me. And you, you found your way to, to making a living doing exactly what you want to do. What made you make that leap? And what's it feel like when you wake up every morning and you're going to make a living on your own term? Well, you know, every morning, if you celebrate Christmas, every morning feels like Christmas. If you were a kid, it was Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever holiday it was. And that day that the presents came, there was that excitement. You're excited to wake up and see what your creation has produced, whether, you know, how many downloads, anybody comment on your post. It's been so exciting every single day, which is why I've written three posts a week, every week since 2009. Um, so how, how did I manage to get out? Well, I knew the first month after joining Goldman Sachs in New York City that I couldn't last in this business forever. I had to get in at 5.30 a.m. I had to stress about making Xerox copies and research packets and competing for the Xerox machines with like 15 other analysts to get these packets on the desk to my bosses by like 6.15 a.m. I had to work until 7.30 p.m. because I had to connect with Asia because the world and you know international markets are all connected. And I knew I couldn't last beyond the age of 40. So I told myself, I'm going to try to gut it out until age 40 in finance. And by then, I'm just dead. There's no way. So after the first month, I started saving every paycheck, which was, you know, you get two paychecks a month. So it was 50% of my after-tax income. And then I decided to invest 95 plus percent of my bonus every single bonus year, just so that I could build enough passive income to one day potentially escape. Because I was already kind of miserable. I was excited that I had the job, but I was also miserable. So one of my recommendations for readers is to really try to forecast your misery. When do you think you'll no longer want to be doing what you are doing now? Because when that time comes, you better be financially ready or else you'll never be able to escape. Forecast your misery. Talk more about that. Like I've spent, uh, I've been out of college for 30 something years. I know that there's been times in my career where I was really excited about my job and times where I was like, this is not going to work. This energy is not what I want every morning when I wake up. Right. So Every, any new job you get, you get the butterflies, you're excited, you want to come in early, you want to impress, you want to network with your fellow colleagues, you believe this could be the next great 10, 20 year career. But the reality is 70% of Americans, according to the Gallup poll, are disengaged from their jobs. And if you do anything, I don't care what you do, if you do anything for 10 years in a row, you will get bored. There is absolutely no doubt in mind you're going to get bored. And so you've got to figure out how to change things up. And you've got to know yourself. So the key to knowing what you want is to know yourself. And so, you know, for me, I just didn't think I could last beyond 40 because my parents, they worked until 60, early 60s and then retired. So they were traditional retirees. For me, I just like, I just couldn't take it. I knew after the financial crisis happened in 2008, 2009, I just didn't even know if I could take it until age 40 anymore. This was 10, 11 years in because suddenly everybody who worked in finance were the bad guys, uh, even though we had nothing to do with you know, mortgages not being paid and the housing market. Sure you didn't, Sam. Sure you didn't. <laughs> so self-determination seems to be a big theme for you and that the way we behave relative to our money is a big factor in to what extent we will be able to determine our own our own future, whether it's what job we want to do, the age we retire, where we want to live, things like that. Are you writing to help the reader become more autonomous in their own life and in their financial life specifically? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe if you have a will, there's a way. So, you know, the book, 
It's $25, $27. I think it's going to be the best value you could ever purchase. Think about how much we spend in high school, in college, all that tuition money. And what are the actionable skills, the practical skills we take away with? Not so much. And it's one of the reasons why having the apprenticeship program in Europe is so effective because you actually learn the things you need to do in life to survive. And being able to depend on no one but yourself is very empowering. And when I was in school, I didn't really see the value of a college education so much. I was thinking, well, you got to just do it so you can get a job. But now, you know, at 45 years old, I recognize that education really is everything. It gives you so much opportunity, so many opportunities to try new things, to have the courage to try new things. And then you'll learn on the way. Uh, with, with the right education, it gives you that courage to be a more independent person and to figure things out on your own. So how do you think about things like student debt, right? Because this is, you, you can't go a day without reading about it in the news, whether it's Biden forgiving or not forgiving student loans, but it's a huge issue. Families cripple themselves or cripple the, their children with multiple six figures worth of debt. You know, try telling your 18 year old who's dead set on going to fill in the name of whatever college, even if you can't afford it. How would you help parents and, and that young student have a conversation about what's appropriate to pay for college? Right. Uh, I have a chapter in that on private school versus public school. And as a product of public school, I'm a big proponent of public school because we all teach the same textbooks. But you also you also live in California where there's a lot of great public universities. Not every state has that kind of uh, now there's a lot more people there, too. But, you know, it's got a pretty strong public school system. I don't know. I mean, I think every state has great public schools. You got University of Michigan, you got uh, Wisconsin, University of Virginia, William and Mary, University of Florida. I would I would take the other side of that. I think public education is great. However, as parents, we want what's best for our children. And even if there's like a 5% incremental benefit to private school, a lot of us will pay way more than 5% more. We'll probably will pay 100% more. Uh, so I think the first thing to do if you have a child looking to go to college is to understand the cost. Talk to them about the cost and what the bank of mom and dad had, how many years we had to save and we had to invest to cover your costs. Because they, there, there needs to be some kind of skin in the game. Otherwise, you take things for granted. And that's the common thing that I see people, you know, pity the person who gets everything handed to them. Everything paid for, a new car, down payment on a house by bank of mom and dad, you know, wealthy parents. You know, some of the unhappiest people I know, the most lost people I know, are the wealthiest people who weren't able to build their own wealth. So in the book, I talk about a ratio. And that ratio for determining whether to send your kid to private or public school, and that ratio is 7x. So if your household income is at least 7x greater than the annual tuition after any scholarships or grants, free money, then you should feel okay to send your kid to that school. Now, if it's not, I would say, don't worry about it. Because over the long term, the spread between a public school and private school grad is not really huge in terms of the income. So if the school costs 50 grand net, I need to have an income of $350,000 or I'm making irresponsible financial decisions. <laughs> so everything is a gray area, Paul. So it's not. Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not trying to yes. you know, pin you down on, yes. on, 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 on to the dollar. It's just yes, sort of but a that direction. Is exactly 
the correct math. If you're going to send your kid to Boston University on fifty thousand dollars, which it's not, it's seventy three thousand. Right. You, you know, you you got to be making <laughs> almost five hundred thousand. And so, if you think about that, and if you've got more than one kid, yes, then you got to add that as well. So you know, seven hundred to a million dollars. So here here's two ways to think about it. The first way is the people who do attend these expensive private universities are indeed very, very wealthy. Look at the ratio of the percentage of, you know, kids from the Ivy Leagues coming from top 1% households. It's humongously overrepresented, right? And two, so no matter how much these schools talk about, you know, democracy of access and education and helping people, they're really focused on the wealthiest Americans uh, in the world. Uh, but two, yes, you need to have some kind of balance where, because you've got to put on your own oxygen mask. You've got to take care of your own financial retirement. Because if you don't take care of your finances, guess who's going to have to take care of you? <laughs> your children. And you're going to burden them. That's why I'm so nice to my kids <laughs> right now. Which is why, all the more reason why, you need to tell your kids, hey, mom or dad or mom and dad <laughs> are sacrificing to send you to this school uh, so please be aware that this is how much time it took for us to pay for your college education. And if you can consider other alternatives and here's the pros and cons, have that discussion because as soon as you give, make that discussion, they're going to appreciate what you've done for them greater and you, they're going to work harder in school. So if you don't pick the right college for them, they're going to pick the wrong nursing home for you. That's the, that's the lesson. That's a great line. I want to go to Notre Dame of nursing homes. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you're going to, uh, podunk peoria state of nursing homes all right so one last thing on the student loan thing but i think it's interesting i think it's interesting now this is a bit of a trope uh, like a conservative trope right well why are you spending seventy thousand dollars a year to to get your kid a degree in basket weaving or yeah. whatever okay on the other hand i just read an article the other day about a woman who's a big advocate for student loan forgiveness she's got two hundred fifty thousand dollars in student loans she's been out for 15 years and she's her loan has gone up from 150 to two hundred fifty thousand dollars she went mm. to a great school, had a degree in public health, I think. And then it said, how could I make my interest payments when I'm making $7 an hour at a coffee shop? Mm. It's like, well, you're not supposed to be working at a coffee shop with a degree mm -hmm. in public health from you know school. Do you see people out there who are not taking responsibility and, and looking at somebody else to pick up their bills uh, when they come due? First of all, the universities need to take a little bit more responsibility because they charge astronomical tuition. Totally agree. Way higher than the rate of inflation historically. And there's no guarantee that th their students will land a job. So one way is to say, hey, if your students don't land a job within, let's say, six months after graduation, maybe you should provide them a refund. Because especially if you have multi-billion dollar endowments, that's something to think about. And because there's no guarantee, right? So we are taking a leap of faith based on your marketing material, your propaganda and all that. Uh, at the same time, we have to do the research. We have to prepare and say, look, what school should we go to that yields the most amount of jobs? Which majors out of which schools have paid the most amount of money? We need to do our due diligence before spending tons and tons of money. Otherwise, you know, that's not fair to the other people who actually end up focused on doing their due diligence and studying the right things. Now, in terms of student loan forgiveness, you know, where it's mid-cycle election as a politician, you know, you have to throw out the candy to remain in power. And so <laughs> that's also what we all need to recognize. You know, the 
politicians, no matter on what side, one of their main goals, probably their main goal is to stay in power and then to help the commoners like us. Um, and so it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to rectify that. Just because I didn't get student loan forgiveness doesn't mean, hey, if you can get it, everything's rational. If you were to flip the coin. So obviously, if you have $250,000 in student loans, you're obviously going to be a proponent of student loan forgiveness. I would say 80% of the people would be. It's a hard answer. It's a hard question. The problem with the government is that they're so inefficient sometimes. You you see how long it takes to build a bridge, cost overruns, you know, the huge budgets on things that might not go with your values. Um, and so I just I, people have to figure that out on themselves. But that's that goes back to my point. Make sure you depend on nobody but yourself. So if you depend on nobody but yourself, you're gonna make the right moves to educate yourself and to take to make better choices. And if someone does help you, whether it's a rich uncle, a government, then great, awesome, take it. Because you would be a fool not to take that free money. Oh, I agree. If I had loans, I would not make a principled stand and say I'm not taking the money. By, by, I mean, I, I've talked to some friends of mine who have loans. I'm like, for sure, wait and see what happens. I mean, take the money if possible. Uh, totally rational. Say you've got a uh, 22-year-old niece or nephew who's just graduated college. Now, the first thing I think I, I've heard you say that you'd tell them is to forecast your misery. What, what else would you, what kind of short and long-term career advice would you give them to make them the most autonomous 40-year-old possible? <laughs> so yes, forecast your misery. Think about what, how much it will take to live, uh, to survive. So you want to know what your basic survival expenses are. And then you want to slowly build up on those expenses and figure out what is that ideal expense budget that provides the optimal lifestyle that you want, a realistic optimal lifestyle. And then once you have those numbers, those target figures, you then reverse engineer and you figure out how much capital you need to accumulate by a certain date when you're miserable, that'll generate at a certain rate of return to cover those expenses. It's about planning for the future, knowing your expenses, knowing the capital you need to accumulate and forecasting various return or withdrawal rates. So that's the basics. And the other thing is, I don't think life is worth living without finding someone uh, to spend time with. And what I mean by that is we, we might spend so much time building our careers, working 60 hours a week, that we might wake up one day middle age and have nobody to share our money and our experiences with. And so I would say, don't forget to work on your relationships. Because really, the older I get, the more it is that the relationships, whether it's at, at work or your friendships or your, you know, your personal love life, those are the things that help you actually build more wealth and happiness. Speaking of happiness, you've got a great definition for happiness that I've not heard anybody else use. And when it comes to living a good life, how would you help people think about what true happiness means? I hope that definition is, uh, I have a one word definition of happiness, and that's progress. And if you think about it, progress in anything, whether it's the relationship with your loved one, your relationship with your children, progress with your podcast growth, or with Financial Samurai, or progress with you know, making buy this, not that a bestseller, all these things, uh, it's just about progress. Because if you're not making progress, there's that saying, it, you know, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. And that that feels terrible, which is part of the reason why bear markets feel so terrible. It's not so, so much you're losing money, which does feel terrible, but it's losing time. <laughs> you know, so the money that you've had could have been converted to pay for your time not 
doing what you don't want to do. So if you lose money, you're essentially losing time. And given we all have finite amount of time, that's when it really starts bumming you up. That's the real issue. So progress is about improvements, incremental improvements, and about having enough money to save you time so you can do more of what you want. It's not comparison, it's progress, right? It's not that I'm the big dog on the block, it's that I'm better than I was yesterday in many aspects of my life. Absolutely, I mean, comparison, we, we can't help but compare. And we need to compare in terms of financially based on our age, because otherwise, if we all make $1 million, does making $1 million seem like a lot? No, you know, is we all make the same amount. So we need to have comparisons and we need to know, you know, what the benchmarks are, but yeah, Definitely spend more time comparing how you were yesterday or the year before. And, and I think that happiness meter will stay elevated over time. You're known as one of the leaders, whether this is whether you have uh, asked to be known or not is sort of irrelevant, but you've been appointed or, or, or recognized as one of the leaders of the FIRE movement. FIRE is an acronym standing for Financial Independence Retire Early. And as I've read about it, my beef has always been um, financial independence, retire early. And then what? How do you help answer that question? Right. So retire early is somewhat of a misnomer because anybody who retires early from a traditional day job doesn't just hang around and sit Mai Tais and chill on the beach in Hawaii all day. In fact, I think the earlier retire from a day job, the more you end up working basically on the things that you want to do. So when I left in 2012, I was 34 years old and negotiated a severance and I thought I just wanted to be done. So I ended up spending about 10 months traveling all around Europe. And I spent six weeks with my wife, um, just traveling as well. I, I just played golf. I played a lot of tennis until my shoulders started falling off and my knees started getting too swollen. And then I realized, man, this is boring after a while. It was really <laughs> just soul sunking while all my friends were working, nobody could come out to play with me during the middle of the day. And so I lost a lot of purpose. And that's the one thing that people need to be careful about. When you're working 10, 20, 30, 40 years, the longer you work, the more you're accustomed to having this purpose, whether it's a not a great purpose or not, you feel like you're a part of something. And it's really jolting to feel a part of nothing after you leave. Yeah, I mean, I did it. I, I retired at 42. And then I found myself completely going, what the hell is it all about? Why am I, you know, like, I, I feel like a loser, right? I, I don't have a place in the world. Yeah. How do you like, how did you replace being in the game at Goldman? Like, how long did it take you to feel like you had a place that you had created for yourself? Right. So I was at Goldman and Credit Suisse. And I left as a director, which is actually one up from VP in finance. And it felt good. But first of all, I tried to become managing director, which is the top. And I, I failed. So after three years as director, I tried, I failed. Usually people try multiple times, but I said, ah, whatever. At least I tried. I won't have regrets having not tried. I started Financial Samurai in 2009, about two years, 10 months before I ultimately left. And it was just a journal during the financial crisis to make sense of the chaos. But what I realized soon thereafter was I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed connecting. And it was so fun. I would wake up 5 a.m. to write on Financial Samurai and I would work, you know, like from 10 p.m. to 12 p.m. just writing as well. And so I was able to retire to something, which was writing. And I had this dream. I, I dreamt of traveling and writing, being a travel writer. You know, you see Rick Steves going across Europe, getting free food and free accommodation and being a travel writer. 
I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Like, awesome. And that's what I kind of did for a little bit. And then I was like, yeah, that gets old after a while. Um, but everything is kind of temporary. What you will do is you will rationally work towards the things that you want to do because you can do it. You have that time. There is nobody's going to just sit there and do nothing. You're going to rationally discover, okay, what, are, what, what is it? So for me, I lived in San Francisco since 2001, but I worked at a bank. So I wasn't able to partake in the tech euphoria, really. But we did take a lot of tech companies public. So what I wanted to do was scratch the ish and see what it would be like to work at a series angel or series C startup. And so that's what I did. I consulted for three companies from series C to series C. And it was really fun. But after a couple of years, I was like, eh, it's still working for someone, even if it's just 15 to 20 hours a week. And I moved on. And I moved on and I focused more on financial samurai. And then over the past two years, I've been focused on Hey, what's it like to write a traditionally published book that's now coming out on July 19th? Okay, let's talk. You've been writing now for 13 years full time. Can you think of a financial issue on which you've changed your mind during that period? Well, one thing I realized, so one of the things I really love is real estate and real estate accounts for about 50% of my net worth and 50% of my passive income. And I thought I was going to just build a real estate empire until I could no longer. You know, my favorite real estate strategy for the common person is to buy a primary residence, live in it for three to five to 10 years, make sure it's nice, rent it out, and then buy another place, live in it for three to five to 10 years, rent it out. And so over a course of a 60 year life, you'll have four to six rental properties, maybe to eight, maybe eight, no problem. And you'll be set, you'll be set for life so easy. (laughs) And so what happened was after I got to the third rental property, I realized this is getting a little painful dealing with tenants who would throw parties and run on the roof during fleet week and they might jump off the roof and break their (laughs) leg and have some kegs. It was just a disaster. And I just couldn't have time for that. And once my son was born in 2017, I said, I don't want to deal with this stuff anymore. So I actually sold uh, the rental property. So I went in reverse and I reinvested those proceeds into private real estate funds, stocks and municipal bonds. And so, yeah, I, I realized that as you get older, And people say this, people can conceptually know this, time becomes more valuable because you have less time. If you were to live until age, let's say 100, the first year of your life is only one one hundredth, but the 51st year of your life is one fiftieth. It's literally twice as fast, twice as valuable, right? And so I changed my mind about owning too much physical real estate. I just can't, I, I can't figure out how people do it. Yeah, you can hire a property manager, but then the property manager has to be managed there's, you know, takes away from profits and so forth. So that's one of the one of one of the things that I've changed my mind about over time. What are the best and worst financial uh, investments that you've made? So my worst financial investment by far is buying a vacation property in 2007 in Lake Tahoe. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So I got it for 15 percent off. It was like, it was selling for like 815, 10,000, and I bought it for 720,000. It's two bedroom, two bath at the resort at Squaw Creek, which is now called the Palisades. And I thought it was great value because I took my girlfriend at the time and I proposed to her. And also, I just got her promoted to vice president. So I was making more money than I had ever made before. I was extrapolating my wealth over the next 10 years. And I said, I deserve a vacation property that accounted for a lot of my net worth. And I agree course, with you. You did. De- you did deserve it. <laughs> so that's the dangerous word in finance. I deserve. So when you have too much of a deserve mentality, you take too much debt 
to buy things you really actually don't deserve yet. And so, of course, the financial crisis occurred and uh, the property went down probably 40% in value within the next couple of years. So I fe- it was like the biggest albatross on my neck for so long. And But the one thing I'm proud about is that I never decided to not pay my debt. I kept on paying because I agreed to pay in my contract. I could have walked away. I just felt bad because if I walked away, that I would feel guilty for not you know, honoring my contract. And then I would also hurt my neighbors who, you know, maybe were there, they were paying their debt as well. So it was one of those things where, you know, it's just like a Lannister in Game of Thrones. You, you always, a Lannister always pays their debt. And so that was with me. And the good thing is... But if you had held on to that property, what would it be worth today? So I did hold on to that property. Oh, you did? I paid all my debt. I finally paid it off this year. And it's worth about not what I paid for it still. <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah. A place in Tahoe is is down from what it was worth in 2007. Well, this was this was a condo tell. So maybe it is worth what it is what I paid for, but I don't think so. I mean, if I bought a single family home, yeah, uh, it would be worth more. But uh the good thing is that I feel good that I didn't not pay my debt and now it's a small portion of my net worth and now I can finally take my kids there to enjoy it even though yeah. it's it's a much smaller place than my primary residence right now. <laughs> Right, right. All right, let's end on a strong note. What's the best investment you've ever made? So by far, the best investment I've ever made is investing in myself and taking taking a chance on myself. So, you know, whatever job you get out of college or graduate school is is like winning the lottery. Many people have veed for that job, so you should be very grateful and thankful. Um, but when I joined Goldman and I worked at Credit Suisse, um, I did okay. I did fine. But I always had a wonder, was it me, uh, my efforts that made me you know, get promoted and paid, or was it the reputation of these firms, right? And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to read as much as possible, learn as much as possible, and just go on on my own and build Financial Samurai. And the great thing about going on your own and being a solopreneur is you gain all the rewards and you gain all the losses, right? It doesn't, there's no doubt about it, who made it happen. And so that's the biggest benefit to invest in yourself and to bet on yourself because sometimes it comes true. And if it doesn't come true, you can always work on improving yourself further. So those are some good thoughts to end on, Sam. The name of the book is Buy This, Not That, How to Spend Your Way to Wealth and Freedom by the Financial Samurai a.k.a. Sam Dogan, who is my guest today. Sam, where can the listeners find out more about you and your work? You can always come to financialsamurai.com. And if you ever have a financial topic you're wondering about, just type that topic and Financial Samurai. And I'm pretty sure you're going to find an article on Financial Samurai about that topic. And if you leave a comment, I'm going to read any comment on any post. And if you have a question, I'll happily respond. Awesome. We'll put the links to that in the show notes. Thanks for doing this for the second time. Uh, I've told the story in the introduction. It's uh, your patience with my incompetence is highly appreciated. Thanks a bunch, Sam. No worries. Not at all. Honor to be here. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.